Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. I'm Peter Walters. Uh, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday the 24th of May 2023. Coming up in the next 90 minutes, our notable Coventry building this week is St Michael's Church, a cathedral for only 20 years, but before that, one of the country's biggest parish churches. We're sampling drinking chocolate, riding on the cutest little train in the country, hearing about the man who has volunteered 40 years with the Echo newspaper, and learning something of the lives of people buried in the historic London Road Cemetery. All that, plus our usual features, news from the Resource Centre, sport and postbag. But we start with a review of the past week's local news with Sheila and myself. Outlook News. There was a changing of the chain as Councillor Jaswant Singh Birdie succeeded Councillor Kevin Mayton as Coventry's Lord Mayor. Councillor Birdie, who spent the last year serving as Deputy Lord Mayor, was presented with the chains of office at the Council's annual general meeting at Coventry Cathedral. A devout Sikh, Councillor Birdie also becomes the city's first Lord Mayor to wear a turban and he said he hopes this historic moment will show Coventry as a happy, multicultural city as well as inspire others. Councillor Mal Mutton has been named as Deputy Lord Mayor for the coming year and Councillor Birdie's wife, Krishna, has become Lady Mayoress. Councillor Birdie has been a city councillor for 16 years, starting with two terms of office representing the Hillfields Ward in the 1990s, before serving as Bablek's councillor for the past nine years. Born in a village in the Punjab in the north of India, Councillor Birdie spent some time as a child in Lahore in Pakistan and Calcutta in West Bengal, as his family travelled for employment. He immigrated to Kenya with his parents in the mid-1950s before coming to the UK in the 60s to continue his further education. As well as his work as a councillor, Councillor Birdie has been actively involved in setting up religious, social and community projects in the city. He said, I'm so proud to become Lord Mayor of my adopted home city. It's given so much to myself and my family over the years and I will be honoured to show why I love it so much and to promote the city and the wonderful people who live here. As a Sikh, it also means so much that I'll be wearing the chains of office and the turban. Council Birdie's Lord Mayor's Charities are the Muscular Dystrophy Society, the Muscular Dystrophy Charity, beg your pardon, the Coventry Resource Centre for the Blind and University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire Charity. The Meriden Hospital has launched a new virtual GP service for Coventrians amid an all-time high demand. The new service will allow patients across Coventry to book virtual appointments with hospital doctors 24 hours a day. Thousands of patients across Coventry and Warwickshire are currently struggling to get access to appointments. 
the new Circle Online GP service will cost £45 for a one-off virtual or telephone consultation and is available on demand between 8am and 10pm, seven days a week. The service will then be able to book a follow-up appointment at the Meriden Hospital should the patient need it. You can find out more by visiting www.circlehealthgroup.co.uk oblique online GP. The charity behind Coventry's food banks has been forced to turn volunteers away as it battles a worrying two-pronged attack. Gavin Kibble, Projects Director at Coventry Food Bank, which runs the city's 14 food banks, said the charity is struggling with a dip in donations from the public at a time when demand continues to rise as a result of the cost of living crisis. Mr Kibble, who set up the organisation 12 years ago, says the situation has become so dire that volunteers were told to stay at home last week because there was not enough food for them to sort. To make matters worse, the 59-year-old can't see the situation improving any time soon. I don't want to be a harbinger of doom, but I don't see an end to this in the short term, he told Coventry Live. I just see it getting more difficult as we go into the latter half of the year. If we don't get enough food in, we can't put it out, Gavin added. Fundamentally, it's down to the cost of living crisis. We've got a 14% rate of inflation, and it's obviously hard for some people, especially those on lower incomes and benefits like universal credit, to make ends meet. It's a double whammy because the general public can't afford to donate as much as we need, and there is a rise in demand. It's been very tricky indeed. It's never been as severe as this. He said that on the last major count, 103 tonnes of food was going out from the charity's distribution centre in Binley, but only 77 tonnes of food was coming in. Mr Kibble says volunteers will be asked to return this week with collections from city supermarkets taking place on Monday. He says donations are continuing to come in, but not on a scale large enough to meet demand with more than 800 people accessing the food banks each week, up from 700 in January 2023 and 500 in January 2022. We've got food in the food banks, he added, but not enough for it all to be sorted if we don't get enough coming in. Given that Coventry Food Bank also pays for food to be redirected to those who need it most, the charity also faces a challenge when it comes to funds. The leader of Coventry Council has called for a parade to pay tribute to Coventry City Football Club players on their return from the Championship playoff finals at Wembley, whatever happens. Councillor George Duggins said he wants people to be able to con- congratulate the Sky Blues on their terrific season, regardless of the outcome on Saturday, May the 27th. He told the local democracy reporting service, people will want to recognise the achievement of the team irrespective of what happens. This is the subject to discussions. It's only what I would want and what I would like to see. There should be the ability for people to see the players when they come back. That would be a parade. He added, then an informal civic reception with a formal one later in the year. No plans have been finalised yet, but discussions were due to take place on Friday, May the 19th. The council will need to work with the police and club on any plans, which could include road closures on Sunday, May the 28th the day after the game. 
If Coventry win against Luton Town on Saturday, they will be in the Premier League for the first time in more than 20 years, having only escaped League 2 in 2018. A Premier League spot would likely bring in over £100 million to the club, according to analysis by accounting firm Deloitte's last year. Councillor Duggins raised the idea of paying tribute to the team's success at the Council's annual general meeting on Thursday the 18th of May, the day after the team earned their place in the playoffs by overcoming Middlesbrough. There will be a lot of work that will be needed to be done by a number of colleagues and a number of organisations to ensure that on the 28th of May, when the team returns home, we are able to celebrate and congratulate the Sky Blues on that achievement. I believe they will win. But whatever happens, I think the city will want to pay tribute to the returning Sky Blues, and I believe that officers and colleagues will be working very hard to ensure this happens. The lives of ordinary people who contributed to their community are being put in the spotlight. The Museum of Me has now opened in Coventry. Each day a different person from Charlesmore will get the chance to present their own individual museum, made with, for and all about them. The residents taking part are just normal people who sometimes go unnoticed to the world around them, but make contributions to society and deserve to be praised for their efforts. Director of the museum, Paul O'Donnell, who is from Charlesmore, said he's inspired by what a museum about the present could look like. Normal museums are a thing of the past and tell a story of yesteryear, he said. In his artistic practice, Paul says that he's always taking well-known things such as musicals or mime artists and working out how to alter them or change them in some way to tell a different story. I started thinking about museums and what it is about museums that I don't really like. Growing up in Charlesmore, Paul wanted to bring the museum back to his hometown. He added, It's a real vibrant place full of lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds. It was fun to bring something I'd created back home. This is the second iteration of the museum after last time's success. The museums will be presented on the grounds of Charlesmore Social Club in a unique wallless museum, and all activities will be free to attend. Each museum will have a special, personalised official opening at 10.15am, complete with a red ribbon to cut canapes and a drinks reception. It's open daily from 10am to 7pm. A community-minded business owner said he has seen wholesale food and energy costs double over the past year. Mr Singh has been trading for over a decade in Coventry at the Joe's Indoor Market on Fosal Road. He said he has never seen costs rise as fast as they have in recent months as the cost of living crisis continues to hit businesses throughout the country. Mr Singh said the running costs of his shop have risen from £150 to £350 each week. He added that customers have also been cutting back on their spending as they try to save money. Speaking to Coventry Live, Mr Singh said, We have seen a massive decline in customer spending ability over the last year as prices have gone up and electric and gas going up. Customers are complaining about prices because they are still getting the same amount of money in their pockets, so they are having to budget. Mr Singh said customers have changed their spending habits as costs continue to rise throughout the city. He said, 
We do get a lot of repeat customers. However, the weekly shopper now only buys daily because they are budgeting on what they buy. So rather than doing the weekly shop, they are buying only their essentials every day. Mr. Singh said the running costs for his shop have more than doubled over the past year. He said, as you know, generally costs have driven a lot. I say by at least 50%. So my electricity used to be £150 and he's now over £350. If you buy a basic tomato, which used to be about £2 a kilo, it is now £3.50 a kilo. He added, a lot of things coming from Europe have gone up due to Brexit as well. The cost of living and energy prices affects the whole unit and from that a lot of customers are getting stressed because they are still living on the same earnings as before. Patients in Coventry and Warwickshire are costing the NHS millions of pounds each year by failing to attend GP appointments. According to new data, patients under the jurisdiction of the NHS Coventry and Warwickshire Integrated Care Board cost the health service a staggering £5.157 million pounds in 171,927 missed appointments between June and December 2022 alone. That figure leaves Coventry and Warwickshire 24th out of 42 ICBs in England for total cost to the NHS. However, when you work on the percentage of appointments missed, Coventry and Warwickshire, 5.2.27%, ranked as the joint 13th worst performing ICB. In terms of regions, the Midlands was the biggest culprit, going by the NHS data compiled by Medical Negligence Solicitor's Patient Claim Line. The Midlands cost the NHS £55,613,250 in 1.853 million missed appointments from June to December 2022. Michael Carson, senior litigation executive from PCL, said, To keep the NHS afloat during trying times, we must try and limit unnecessary strain in the attempt to reduce wasteful spending. Attending GP appointments is one of the ways we can all do our bit. However, there are many valid reasons as to why people may not be able to make it to their GP appointment. A lack of childcare, poor public transport or financial problems are all understandable reasons. If you find yourself in this situation, the best thing to do is to call ahead to let your GP know, at least a day before your appointment. Patient claim line calculated the cost of missed appointments per ICB using the £30 estimate given by NHS England. Greater Manchester ICB had the highest cost to the NHS with an alarming £17.898 million wasted due to missed appointments. Coventry Council's political boundaries are set to change for the first time in 20 years. Areas of the city that elect councillors, known as wards, are being redrawn under a review by the Local Government Boundary Commission. City residents are now being asked to give their feedback on what this new political map could look like. The move is decided to make sure councillors represent a similar number of voters and aims to help the council work effectively according to the Commission. People can give their views via www.lgbce.org.uk oblique all-reviews-coventry or by post to the review officer Open bracket, Coventry, close bracket, LGBCE, 
PO Box 133, Blythe, NE249FE. The consultation runs until the 31st of July this year. It comes after data showed significant differences between the city's 18 wards, resulting in unfair representation, a council report said. As of late 2021, Lower Stoke, Henley and Longford had over 10% more voters than average for wards across the city. In contrast, Woberley, St Michael's and Waynebody had over 10% less than average. The Commission has now agreed that the council size will stay the same, but is asking residents for their views on what new wards should look like. Officials there are asking people to tell them what facilities and issues are shared between communities, whether new developments have changed the face of the area, and if geographic features form strong boundaries between places. Over 1,000 homes have been built as part of a huge regeneration scheme in Coventry. Families have already started moving into the new housing development on Milverton Road at Wood End. Citizen Housing has worked with Keep Moat Homes on the multi-million pound redevelopment, which is currently in its fifth phase. Since 2010, 979 homes have been built, with 275 of these allocated as affordable housing. A further 94 homes will be built in the coming months, the housing company said. Margaret Dodge recently moved into the 1,000th home with her young son Samuel. She said, When I moved into my new home at Spirit Quarters, it felt like I'd been given a new life and a new start. I love everything about my new home, from the parking to the atmosphere and the homeliness of it. It's warm, clean and beautiful. It's everything I could wish for in a home. Margaret added that her new home has also benefited her son, Samuel. She said, My son loves that we have a garden and he's able to go out there whenever he wants. The spirit quarters of the estate is going to be really beautiful when it's done, and it's looking great so far. Citizens Director of Regeneration, Kevin Rope, said, We're so pleased to hear how much Margaret loves her new home, and we hope she enjoys her time living at spirit quarters. It's also fantastic news that we've reached 1,000 home milestone at the development and we're looking forward to seeing more homes completed as part of Phase 5 of the scheme. Amanda Bishop, Regional Managing Director at Keep West Midlands, said, We're thrilled to announce the completion of the thousandth home at the Spirit Quarters development. Thanks to our ongoing partnership with Citizen, we've developed a thriving community that has directly benefited the local community, both through additional high-quality housing and job creation. Outlook News That's the news so far this week so thank you for Sheila uh, um, for helping with that Um, Just moving briefly on um, to public announcements I think we have the Sunrise and Sunset uh, Times here Sunrise is at 4.58 this week Sunset at 21.06, that's 9.06. So, moving on now to one of our regular features that's always welcomed. Um, Here's Hugh with news from the Resource Centre. Hello, everybody. Well, when I started planning what I was going to say to you, I thought, oh, my God, have I got anything to say? And then the list started getting longer and longer and longer. So let's get on there, get on with it. Uh, So this is the last call for places on the theatre trip um, on the 21st of 
June. Uh, we're going to see Sweeney Todd at the Criterion Theatre. Because it's a musical, the, pri- the tickets are a bit pricier than normal, so they're £15, plus the usual £6 for the bus return if you're taking it, uh, and whatever you have for supper. Uh, so please uh, give your name to... Heather or Carol on reception and uh, they will put you down uh, I'm not going to be asking again I shall be booking the tickets next week um, now we've had lots of things going on at the centre this week um, the uh, handrails in the back garden are in the midst of being replaced we had a lovely team from uh, from Coventry Building Society come to see us last week and they painted uh, lots and lots of these handrails and Jeff Gort our fabulous um, maintenance man volunteer um, he is fixing the handrails in the back garden so you will soon see bright yellow brand new rails um, appearing in the back garden Uh, which hopefully uh, should be easy to see. Now, we've booked um, a date for our summer garden party. Uh, This is known to me as Scone Day because I get up very early in the morning and bake dozens and dozens and dozens of scones. So, uh, July the 22nd, um, it'll probably start... I don't know, midday, I can't remember exactly what time we said it will start. But anyway, it will happen uh, uh, on July the 22nd, which is a Saturday. Uh, we're going to have a tombola and um, a nearly new stall there and some uh, things coming around from the charity shop as well. Um, so if anybody's got any gifts they would like to um, present, either for use on the tombola or... Um, for sale on the nearly new table um, so things like unwanted gifts that you may have received then uh, we'd be very pleased to receive them now uh, well, yes just hand them in at uh, reception uh, whenever you feel like it uh, now Joe Proctor who some of you will know from groups um, is uh, came to me um, a few weeks ago uh, with an idea that we would um, do what's called what we're calling a poppy project um, we're going to uh, for the uh, Remembrance Day which is the 11th of November have an event uh, in the front car park um, where we get where uh, poppies that people have made uh, will be uh, attached to a camouflage net that will be coming down the front of the building and we'll have some we're working with blind veterans on this project and hopefully Royal British Legion as well but we're trying to get hold of them uh, but it'll be an information event about um, about sight loss um, and it should be quite exciting now we're looking for people to help make poppies and there's any number of ways you can do that either knitting or crocheting or colouring in or uh, making things out of plastic or foam anyway we've got lots of ideas for different ways that people can uh, join in we're going to need probably in excess of 3,000 poppies and I think we've got 300 made already so uh, anything that anybody would like to do to help on that uh, please um, uh, put your name down again at reception and uh, somebody will be in contact and uh, with some ideas Uh, craft club are uh, involved whether they like it or not so there we are that's great so um, so we'll I'll tell you much more about that um, as the time approaches Now, today is sort of a slightly sad day because uh, 
tomorrow, as I'm recording this, uh, the Thursday, is uh, is Guy Rawson's last day as transport coordinator. He's been absolutely fantastic, of course, over the five years that he's been here. Uh, it seems a lot less, it has to be said, um, but you know he's been absolutely fantastic in the role, and we are going to miss him absolutely dreadfully. Um, so, you know, it'll be a fond, fond, fond farewell to him um, uh, tomorrow. Um, we hope he won't be a stranger, but uh, he's uh, going to enjoy some well-earned retirement, um, get down with the bird spotting and... Um, and, and uh, dealing, with, uh, dealing with the family. Gosh, aren't we all dealing with families at the moment? Um, and I'm very pleased to say that the person uh, replacing him uh, in the admin role for the time being is Claire Norman. Uh, so Claire, you'll know most of you from Music Group and from various things. Claire has been a trustee for the last couple of years, um, but she's stepping down as a trustee and stepping into being an employee. So she's going to be running the transport operation from the office. Uh, she's had a week of training already and is picking it up uh, marvellously. So we're looking forward very much to her. So be kind, everybody, be kind. Um, mind you, she can definitely stand up for herself. So if you're not kind, she, you'll know about it. So uh, that's <laughs> so that's good. Um, and talking of Normans, um, I think I told you last uh, last time that uh, Chris Norman will also be starting to work for us um, as our service development officer so he'll be working with Rosie to help get more volunteers in but he'll also be doing quite a lot of the group management so that I don't have to it's like the, the Norman conquest all over again it is uh, so we have both of them uh, working for us and then we'll also be welcome, welcoming um, uh, uh, Kudi uh, Santana who will be taking the other role as outreach officer and We'll have both of them in here separately at one point and we'll get them to uh, talk about um, uh, talk about what their jobs are going to entail and everything so that you all know. Uh, I might do a little interview with them or something for the, for the newspaper in due course, which is great. Now, we had a lovely surprise, actually, um, uh, on uh, Monday when the new Lord Mayor came to visit uh, with the Lady Mayoress. So that's um, Jazz Birdie, the Lord Mayor, and Krishna Kaur Birdie, uh, the Lady Mayoress. And they came to welcome our wonderful Hilda, uh, welcome to wish our wonderful Hilda um, a fantastic 102nd birthday. Can you believe it? Um, and she's still going strong. Um, uh, Rosie, Trish, Claire, and um, Suresh Munyal, who's our uh, chair of trustees now uh, we attended the inauguration of uh, the new Lord Mayor at the cathedral um, last week uh, which was a glittering affair and most wonderful so it was a, it's been a week full of events really uh, so anyway so that is it for this week I've got to dash off into Birmingham now and um, and pick up a desk for for Coody, uh for when so that she's got something to work off when she arrives so I will be back with you next week Thank you, Hugh. Plenty in that, of course, as usual. And now here's Sarah with your sports report for this week. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. It's Sarah with Sport. And on a bit of a high this week because the Sky Blues are going to Wembley. Yes. As you'll all remember, because you listen to every word I say, don't you? 
Oh, yes, you do. Anyway, in the playoff semi-finals, those, the semi-finals are for the teams that finish in third place to sixth place in the league. So they don't go up automatically, but they get an extra chance to sort of play each other. They play like a round robin to secure that final place. And Coventry took on Middlesbrough. Now, the first match, to be honest, which was at the CBS, was a bit of a disappointment, and it finished nil-nil. And, well, not a lot you can say, really, because there weren't many highlights. And, if anything, I was left with the thought of, oh, my gosh, we've got to take on this lot at their ground. So, on Wednesday evening... Head up to Middlesbrough to the Riverside Stadium. Now, we hadn't won at the Riverside in all 13 attempts. So, all did not bode well. And certainly when the match started, Middlesbrough, I felt, were really having the majority of the play and were in the dominance. But on the 56th minute... Victor, quote, my name begins with a G, close quotes, Jokeres, Pastor Gustavo Hamer, who blooming well went and scored. Oh, come on next 34 minutes plus what transpired to be 8 minutes injury time. The commentators on the radio were saying it's too early for City to sit back. And, in all fairness, they didn't. In fact, the match was pretty much end-to-end with both sides having good scoring opportunities. Middlesbrough for their first and us for their second, she says, rubbing it in. Now, it has to be said that Ben Wilson, our goalie, should have been awarded an honorary PhD for time-wasting. And indeed, he did get a yellow card for it. He was doing everything. When he caught the ball, he would sort of throw himself onto the ground to waste a little bit of time. And the funniest point was when he tipped one of their goal attempts just over the bar and the ball got lodged in the top of the net. Now, normally that's a very easy procedure because the goalies are pretty damn tall, so he'd just normally jump up and knock it off. Well, he was sort of playing ping-pong on his own from left to right to left to right. Anyway, Ben, you mustn't do that when you're at Wembley. Woo-hoo-hoo, we're going to Wembley. I have to say, it was terrible listening to the injury time when they said there'd be eight minutes. And then in the eighth minute, they, Middlesbrough, dared to have a corner. Oh, my gosh. At this stage, I was lying on my bed because I was listening upstairs thumping my fist into my mattress, saying, no, 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 no. Well, it worked because they didn't. 
and it is now us that's going off to Wembley to play Luton for the hallowed ground known as the Premiership or the Premier. Now, first of all, that match, and it's a winner-takes-all, one-off, is reckoned to be worth £156 million. That's a combination of sort of the advertising, the marketing, the golden parachute you, you may get when you're, if you're relegated and everything. But being in the Premier really would put us or will put us in a different, oh, shouldn't use this word, but financial league. So, the match is on Saturday the 27th of May at 4.45 and you can listen to it on the radio on either Talk Sport or get your local commentary, including from Steve Grizovich on CWR. And it is also on Sky TV, Channel 401. I don't think it is on Terrestrial TV. But there's a lot of places and a lot of pubs, certainly, who are screening it in town. Now, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do, because half of me would love to go to a big screen somewhere and join in the crowd and the singing and the chanting. But I know that when you're only five foot tall, a big screen ain't on, particularly if I had a line of six footers in front of me. And I do also have Sky TV, so I could watch it on the telly. But I think I'm going to continue what I've done for the two semi-finals and go upstairs, listen to it on CWR and carry on sorting out my summer clothes. Now, one major difference I should mention is that VAR, the video assistant referee, is in operation at Wembley and will be used. So expect long, drawn-out discussions, decisions. Was it a goal? Was he offside? Whatever. Though I feel that if VAR had been in operation, either at the CBS or at the Riverside, it wouldn't have made any difference because they were both clean, albeit slightly boring, at the CBS matches. Now, next week, I have a promise. If Coventry City, or when Coventry City, beat Luton and go up to the Premier, I will present this programme in the nude. But as I record at home, only my cats will know and they won't tell. <laughs> now, I know it's sometimes hard to believe, but there really is a world of sport out there other than football. So I've just got a few highlights to just fill up the rest of my time. Firstly, in the tennis, Andy Murray, or should I say Sir Andy Murray, has withdrawn from the French Open after basically a pretty poor record recently 
on clay which is the terrain of the French Open and he's going to concentrate on a long preparation on grass for Wimbledon which starts at the beginning of July I believe then secondly Brooks Kepka won the US PGA Golf his fifth major now there's no great big story in that I mean he is now he has just regained the world number one but the stunning thing I found was that this was in the US albeit in New York State which is quite near the border with Canada but we are in May and yet play was delayed most mornings with catch-up towards the end by frost this weather sure is crazy and in the women's welterweight boxing tournament had to get the teeth out there to say at the weekend you'll be aware there's been a lot of hype about the Irish lass Katie Taylor fighting again in Dublin her home country well it didn't actually go to plan because step up an English woman Chantelle Cameron who inflicted the first professional victory over Katie Taylor now don't get me wrong I am not knocking the huge success of Ms Taylor I mean she did win the gold medal in the 2012 Olympics in London so she's been fighting quite a time but I'm a bit sort of well I don't really know the word but there was a lot of coverage on our news about the fight beforehand when it was Katie Taylor returns to Ireland but I had to dig really hard to find out who was the actual winner now this is an and finally but it's not a sort of quirky and finally like normally because again I, I find it a bit sad really wasps who you may remember were the rugby team who flew to Coventry took over our then named Rico Arena and both me and Leo were always very sceptical because to us our rugby club is Coventry well you'll be aware that Wasps were relegated from the Premier when they basically went into administration but they unlike Worcester Warriors who also went into administration were to be allowed to play in the championship having met certain conditions and I think everyone was looking up looking ahead to that first match Coventry versus Wasps because Coventry are also in the championships well I'm afraid Wasps weren't able to meet the financial costs or charges that the union wanted off them and so they have now been relegated to the lowest league of rugby union which I believe is the 10th division could be the 9th but I know even the Wasps amateur side play at the 7th hey ho how the mighty really have fallen 
But hopefully next week I'll be singing and cheering and you'll hear my full repertoire of Cov City songs in the nude. Bye. Thanks, Sarah. And now it's time for Dave with your postbag. This is Postbag. Discussion. Welcome to this coronation postbag. First of all, happy 102nd birthday to Hilda Hill on the 25th of May. Hilda was crowned queen at the coronation party at the resource centre. Hilda told me that there would be mixed feelings among the older generation about Charles and Camilla, but the younger generation couldn't care less. Well, here's some mixed feelings about the coronation, starting from... Graham Whale. Well, to be honest, my only interest in the coronation was the music. I was interested to hear what music was chosen. Uh, it was a very religious occasion, and I'm just not that religious, to be honest. And though I'm not anti-royals, like some people, uh, it was the sort of thing which I felt I needed to witness, rather than wanted to witness. And I felt the service went on far too long. Two hours was far too long. I feel sorry for the spectators outside in the pouring rain, but it was their choice. Fortunately, the weather in this area cleared up for people to have their celebrations. But the highlight of this weekend, as far as I'm concerned, is the football match on Monday between Coventry City and... um, Oh, would you believe it? I've just forgotten what we're playing. Um, never mind. Uh, I will know the result by the time, by the time this goes out in postback. <laughs> Senior moment. Sorry about that. Thanks, Graham. So what do you think of the coronation? Julia enjoyed the three parties she went to. Her report's entitled, Three Cheers for Chas and Cam. We had three coronation celebrations last week. The first was at the Torch Fellowship, and my best friend forever, Eva, was there. It was all about the Union Jack, and we had a ball, a crown, and a large old coin on the table as well. More important then than all that, we had a coconut cake and sandwiches to go with our lovely cup of tea. Phil's assistant, Nigel, said he was going to Korea to help some children. The second celebration was at the Gateway Club with Wendy the Warden. We had some food and a pint of pims each. Then we had to name members of the royal family. But that wasn't enough for us. We had a third celebration at the community lounge. I didn't bring a doggy bag for my friend John because he doesn't believe in the royal family. If I was Queen Camilla, I'd have had his head cut off. Then we could put him on the bonfire and dance around him, singing. And I'd sing, Brown Girl in the Ring, Julia. Thank you, Julie, that was great. And uh, Edwina wasn't able to see or hear the coronation due to being deaf-blind, but you wouldn't know it from this description. Hi, everybody. This is Edwina. Wow, what a lot of viewing has been going on lately. On May the 6th was a very, very important day. It was the crowning of King Charles III. 
It was an amazing event, very, very well planned. King Charles was wearing the robe being made for George V in 1911. It was very different when it came to after the crowning because they went back to the palace in the beautiful gold coat being used very specially to take King Charles III and his Queen Camilla back to Buckingham Palace. It was drawn by six beautiful white horses. That must have been quite something to see. Also was when they were settled back at Buckingham Palace they did come out onto the balcony. King Charles was wearing, amazingly, a purple velvet suit. So he's obviously going to be more colourful. When we think of what Queen Camilla wore, before she was Queen, she arrived at Westminster in a beautiful white dress a long white dress. Around the hem of the dress there were pictures of all of the Queen's dogs. So that was quite something because they'd been embroidered onto the dress. Also two rescue dogs. They were named Bluebell and Beth. Of course for years the Queen's favourite dogs were corgis. They were all shown on the dress with their names. So that was quite special that was to remember the Queen in such a, a special way. Camilla is going to be a quite calming and good influence for Charles. She is a very normal country girl at heart, but she is really settled well beside Charles, and she will be a good influence for Charles and for the country. I wish Charles and Camilla very warm wishes from all of us that they have a happy and very successful reign together. Thank you Edwina, that was great. And back to Graham who responds to Sarah Lewis with a query about station buses. Yes, Sarah's, Sarah's question about the buses using the uh, terminal in the station. Um, Certainly if you're coming out of the station, if you can get upstairs, I would come out of the bridge uh, exit uh, because uh, you've got more choice of buses if you catch the bus on the bridge because um, the 11 and also the stagecoach service, I can't remember what number it is now, is it X, X17, X14 or something, I don't know, um, well certainly the 11 uh, stops on the bridge as well as 
going into the terminal. So if you add to that the 12x and the 9, you've got more choice of buses to catch. So, you know, if you can manage the upstairs exit onto Warwick Road, I would suggest doing that. They've certainly ticked off the boxes uh, in the station. They've got guidance passes, as Sarah alluded to, right through to the old building. And in fact, it goes alongside the old building and around the corner, and it ends at the taxi rank. The taxi rank is actually at the end of the old um, station building. And the booking office, as Sarah said, is also in the old station building, which is a bit of a nuisance if you're coming in the new entrance, if you've got to walk all the way over there to buy a ticket. Um, but uh, that's why we've got booking offices. Rumour has it they're going to close them all. So what do we do then? Thank you, Graham. I hope that helped explain to you where the buses and taxis are at the station. And let us know how you get on with Coventry Station and what do you think of it, by the way. And thank you for your messages this week. Please let's hear from you next time. And you know the phone number, 02476 717 522 and press 5 for Coventry Talking Newspaper. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Dave there with your Postbag. Now, Margaret continues the series of Coventry in 50 Buildings. Today is the story of Coventry Cathedral, formerly the parish church of St Michael. Coventry's new cathedral wasn't welcomed by all. In 1944, one newspaper reader wrote, The plans for the proposed new cathedral have now been before the public for some little time but on the whole they do not appear to have aroused very much enthusiasm. Most of the support for the plans seems to come from the clerical circle, whereas old conventions and former worshippers at the cathedral evince few signs of satisfaction. The reason for this is undoubtedly the very great disappointment felt at the fact that it was not proposed to restore the old cathedral to its former state. This was what most Coventry folk were expecting and the publication of the plans proved something of a bombshell. Objections continued and Sir Alfred Herbert offered to pay towards the old cathedral's restoration. The original design put forward by Giles Gilbert Scott was a truly impressive building being effectively a massive Norman-style cathedral with cloisters attached to the end of the ruins, keeping half of the ruins and tower as a cloister and entrance. The apse was to be incorporated into the massive Norman-style tower. Scott was pressured from the new bishop to design a modern building and the Royal Fine Arts Commission to design a medieval building. His compromise was to blend the two. Unable to reconcile this, he resigned in 1947. His remarkable design is now generally forgotten. Thereafter, a competition was held 
It had 219 entries and was won by a relatively unknown Basil Spence. Spence's new design had a mixed reception. He said, I received 700 letters about my design. 80% of them were rude, the rest very rude. The proverb said, we see the, lab- the cathedral as a great laboratory of experiment. We feel we have been given a license to do experimental and probably controversial work. Controversial it certainly was, and still is, with tourists and Coventrians, some love it, some hate it. Time, however, makes a modern building less controversial, and in 1999 it was voted Britain's best loved building. Work began in June 1954, and in March 1956 the Queen laid the foundation stone. By 1962 the building was completed, and in May it was consecrated. Attached to the old cathedral by a porch, It has sheer massive walls inspired by Norman cathedrals. As you approach the steps, you see the striking bronze figures of Christ and the Devil by Jacob Epstein. Beyond them is John Hutton's fabulous glass west screen, decorated with saints, angels and apostles, cut by Hutton using a small hand tool. This remarkable work, or the glass dust from it, aided his passing, and Hutton's ashes are buried at its base. As you enter the building, beyond the slender columns and impressive medieval-style vaulted ceiling, is Graham Sutherland's 92-feet-high tapestry of Christ in Majesty, the second largest in the world. To the right is the baptistry window, standing 81 feet high, high and holding 195 panels of stained glass. Designed by John Piper and made by Patrick Rentians, this stunning piece of abstract art depicts the light of God sweeping through the darkness. The building is full of details of interest, including magnificent medieval stained glass by the famous John Thornton in the Undercroft. And Margaret will be back next week with the history of more of Coventry's notable buildings. Next, food historian Sam Belton investigates the history of one of the nation's favourite treats. This is read by Sheila. The UK is a nation of chocoholics. We get through nearly 700,000 tonnes of the stuff each year, and at least half of us tuck in at least once a week. But how much do you know about the history of chocolate? From its origins as a savoury hot drink to its promotion as a 17th century superfood, here are five things that might surprise you about this much-loved tempting treat. Ancient civilizations used cacao beans as currency. The people of South and Central America were chocolate addicts long before anyone in Europe had even tasted the stuff. Like tomatoes, potatoes and dozens of our other favourite foodstuffs, cocoa is native to Central and South America, and cocoa beans were used as money and even as offerings to gods. They drank cocoa rather than ate it. The Mayans version was decidedly savoury, made of ground cacao beans, maize and water, and flavoured with allspice and vanilla, while the Aztecs added chilli powder, 
and Achiote giving the drink a scarlet hue. They sometimes boiled the drink to create an early, if very different, predecessor of what we call hot chocolate today. Chocolate took a while to take off in Europe. Europeans weren't convinced by cocoa at first. One described it as a bitter drink for pigs, but all that changed when the Spanish added sugar and spices to make it much more palatable. By the early 17th century, cocoa was making its way across the Atlantic to be turned into high-end hot chocolate treat for wealthy European elites. The English took a little longer to get a taste for it, and high import duties meant that it was only available to the very rich. They mixed it with water or milk, sugar, egg yolks and sometimes brandy, and drank it out of small dishes rather than cups. Chocolate was an Enlightenment-era superfood. In the 17th century, many Europeans believed that the body contained four humours, or types of fluid. According to the theory, each humour had specific elemental qualities which needed to be kept in balance for good health. Food had these qualities too, so attention had to be paid to getting the mixture right which is why the Spanish mixed chocolate, thought to be cold and dry, with spices like cinnamon, vanilla and sugar, thought to be hot and moist. One optimistic Spanish doctor wrote in 1631 that chocolate preserves from all infectious diseases. Not everyone could agree on exactly which category it fell into. The unknown author of The Natural History of Chocolate, dated 1724, thought spices interfered with chocolate's benefits, but that those benefits included prolonging the lives of old men and acting as an aphrodisiac. Chocolate houses were popular and political. Chocolate was enjoyed at fashionable coffee shops and dedicated chocolate houses. These were frequented by late 17th and 18th century literati and were renowned hubs for political factions, so much so that Charles II tried and failed to suppress them. The clubs were notorious gambling dens, and Daniel Defoe advised fathers to warn their daughters of promiscuous conversations that take place in chocolate houses. During Queen Anne's reign, the cocoa tree in Pall Mall was a favoured haunt of dissident Jacobites, but that didn't stop Anne being a fan of the dark stuff. In May 1709, she spent £50 on drinking chocolate, equivalent to about £5,000 in today's money. Cocoa has links to the slave trade. Its rise in popularity coincided with a massive increase in the use of slave labour. At first the Spanish used indigenous people to grow and harvest cocoa, but disease and maltreatment of the local people had a catastrophic impact on the native population, which had fallen by 90% by the end of the 17th century. They were replaced by enslaved Africans brought to the New World as part of the triangular trade. Between the 16th and 19th centuries, many millions of Africans were enslaved and transported across the Atlantic to work on plantations to grow cocoa as well as tobacco, cotton and sugar. Thanks, Sheila. An interesting story, an interesting history, shall I say, of drinking chocolate there. The Charterhouse and its historic heritage park recently opened to the public. And this prompted an article in the Heritage Park Times, um, written by yours truly, about some of the people buried in the adjacent London Road Cemetery. Elaine tells us about five of these. 
The names of Lizzie Stewart and Vitruvius Wingrave have not, until now, featured among the roll call of famous Coventry folk from the past, yet that might be about to change. The Victorian ballad singer and the medical scientist are among 13 people buried at London Road Cemetery whose lives are being researched for a project aimed at highlighting some of the cemetery's less well-known stories. There's ten characters here in this newspaper article, the first of which is Lizzie Stewart. A classically trained singer, Lizzie Stewart was widely known as the Scottish Songtress, even though she was born in Dublin of English parents. Her performances, notably at the Burns Festival at the Crystal Palace in 1859, were received with huge acclaim and she appeared in concert halls and music venues all over Britain. In 1857, Lizzie married Coventry ribbon manufacturer Albert Thompson, who would go on to become a leading figure in the 19th century city, elected mayor of Coventry eight times. Sadly, Lizzie did not live to share in his civic success. She died at the age of just 30 in November 1861, not long after giving a musical lecture at Birmingham Town Hall in support of distressed Coventry weavers who had been reduced to poverty by the collapse of their industry. Character number two, Vitruvius Wingrave. Born in Coventry in 1858, Wingrave was a keen rugby player and cyclist as a young man and claimed to have ridden the first bicycle brought into England from France. He became a doctor, later specialising in diseases of the ear and throat and for 30 years a leading specialist at the London Throat and Ear Hospital, writing several books on the subject. He retired to Lyme Regis in Dorset in 1920 founding the town museum that still exists and endowing it with his own collection of fossils. He retained close links with Coventry and on his death in June 1938 his funeral service was held at Coventry Cathedral before interment in London Road. Number three, John Bailey Shelton. Regarded as Coventry's first archaeologist, Shelton was a Nottinghamshire-born farm labourer who came to Coventry in his early twenties to work as a drayman for the railway. In 1907 he started his own haulage business in Little Park Street and while laid up in hospital with a broken leg, discovered a fascination with Coventry's medieval history and archaeology. During the wholesale city centre demolitions of the 1930s, he was to be seen constantly clambering around building excavations and the objects he collected then became the basis of his own Benedictine Museum which he opened at his home in Little Park Street. Shelton was bombed out of his home during the Blitz but continued his archaeological work. In 1945 he was appointed as one of two city chamberlains for Coventry and in 1956 was awarded the MBE for his services to the history and archaeology of his adopted city. Two years later he was killed in a motorcycle accident, 
but his museum became the core of the archaeological collection of the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum. Number five, Thomas Stevens. From the ruins of Coventry's ribbon industry sprang very few successful entrepreneurs, but Thomas Stevens was one. Born in Foleshill, Stevens was a ribbon manufacturer working and living in Hillfields when the Cobden Treaty with France in 1860 destroyed the local ribbon industry almost overnight. Innovative and ruthless in pursuit of new markets and new products, within two years he had perfected a way of using a jacquard loom to weave colourful pictures from silk. Some of these Stephen Graff pictures were used for bookmarks and greetings cards, and Stevens even secured contracts to produce specialised products for the Admiralty. By 1875, he was employing 300 people in his new Stephen Graff factory in Cox Street. His reputation had spread beyond the UK to the United States in particular, and in 1878 he moved to London to manage his growing business. There seemed no bounds to his success, but in the autumn of 1888, Stevens was taken ill and underwent an operation on his throat. Complications set in and he died in October. His work is still popular with collectors around the world. Character number five, Joe Vickers. Inventor and prize fighter seems an odd mix of careers, but London-born Vickers could boast of some success in both. The son of a publican, he came to Coventry at the age of ten, and four years later was apprenticed to a watchmaker in the city. During the 1860s, in his twenties, he became a well-known prize fighter in Coventry, good enough to challenge for a world title at seven and a half stone. His longest fight against Jack Lamb in 1869, lasting a gruelling 28 rounds, a total of two hours and seven minutes of bare-knuckle combat. By the late 1870s, he was appearing in trade directories as a watchmaker, and shortly afterwards invented the portrait watch, featuring images of the royal family, famous actors and sporting personalities, which became popular over the next two decades. Following his father into the licence trade, he took on the old wheel in Leicester Row, turning it into a sporting pub. But by 1904, life had turned sour for Joe Vickers. His marriage ended, he gave up the pub, and two years later he was found dead in the yard of the Cranes Inn on Bishop Street after a drinking bout. Thanks, Elaine. We'll hear more about some more of those interesting characters next time. The April edition of the Earlson Echo surprised one of their volunteers, Keith Bushnell, with a four-page article about his 40 years as a volunteer with the Echo. Amy has its details. Hello, I'm Ali Bushnell. You might remember my voice as being one of the people that reads stories to you from time to time. My husband Keith also does stories for you, but from the sports pages. And it's my husband Keith I want to talk about today because Keith is one of the main people behind The Echo, the Earlsden, Chapelfields and Hearsell Opinion, which is a newspaper, a community newspaper, that has been going for over 40 years. 
Recently, Keith celebrated his 40th anniversary of working as a volunteer on Echo, and the team surprised him by sneaking in an extra four pages to the April edition of Echo, which he knew nothing about. He was ever so surprised, and they gave him a little celebration and a tankard with his name on it, commenting how wonderful they thought he was for 40 years of loyal service. And I had a bit of a part in the the subterfuge because I had to record some sneaky interviews with him on my, my phone to give to the Echo team so they could get quotes directly from him without him knowing. So when he sent his copy of the Echo off to the printers, that was intercepted by the team who sneak in um, four extra pages. And when he saw the original Echo wasn't the one that he sent off, but indeed had four pages devoted to him, he was very, very surprised. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read to you those four pages of Echo and hopefully you'll enjoy Keith's journey of 40 years. Keith's quiet sense of humour and interest in a wide range of issues, plus commitment to our local area, enabled him to introduce the old codger Don Searle to our readers through the Earlsdon Roundabout column. This ran for several years from 1985. Commenting on the likes of traffic and parking, local politics, local landmarks and changing behaviours and inevitably on his beloved Sky Blues. By popular demand, and no doubt influenced by Keith's liking for good ales, amongst uh, many other interests, Don Searle was persuaded to come out of retirement in April 1991 to bring us his amusing monthly pub crawl, covering the many pubs in the Earlsdon area, over a couple of years, with a few rare subsequent guest appearances, sampling pub refurbishments and the like. Don described himself as an opinionated old bore, offering very subjective views. Nevertheless, his columns were always cited as clear favourites in our surveys of readers' views on Echo and its various features and news content. Another of Keith's superpowers, as many of the team will have experienced, especially in the paste-up meetings, which were held in person before Covid struck, is his prestigious memory. When he needed to quickly refer back in a meeting to an article from previous years, Keith was invariably able to pinpoint from memory, combined with logical deductions, the particular issue for reference. Once, or perhaps twice in our now 44 years of production, we've accidentally omitted to change the issue number on the front cover, thereby ending up with an overlap in the numbering sequence. So Graham and I used to make a habit of ensuring we double-checked the issue cover number, and we did this by asking Keith, who, to our delight, every time, would work it out from the top of his head in front of us, again using a memory and logic and a bit of arithmetic. Graham was one of our original team who founded Echo in 1979 and remained heading Echo up until we lost him in 2020. Keith had always acted as Graham's deputy for team meetings and did a superb job of picking up things over the crucial paste-up weekend of February 2019 when Graham was suddenly put out of action and ensuring we got the March 2019 issue out on time and continued never to miss an issue. Keith, in effect, took over the leadership from the weekend 
and has helped to see ECHO through the extremely challenging period of COVID and lockdown, when we were obliged to move more and more to use online practices. Thanks to Keith's ability to step up and sheer commitment, ECHO has continued to thrive and sees its 44th birthday issue this month. On a personal note, Keith's loyalty and commitment to Graham and to ECHO really shone through as he visited us regularly throughout Graham's illness to ensure that Graham continued to be able to be involved in ECHO and concerns throughout 2019. And after Graham died in 2020, Keith continued to work and support me in the most helpful and sensitive ways to help ensure Graham's life and contribution to ECHO and the Earlsden community and beyond were very well recognised and commemorated. Angela Mason, the current Lady Mayoress, who was a member of the team when Keith joined us in 1983, recalls, I remember Keith from the early days of ECHO, when I was still able to be involved myself, and when, of course, we were all so much younger. He seemed to be very earnest about being part of the team, and soon became a dependable member. Now I'm no longer able to be involved myself, it's good to see Keith and his camera at various events and to know that Echo still thrives, in part because of his long-standing commitment to the local community, which Echo serves. Pat Whiteman joined Echo during the 80s and proved to be another stalwart, particularly regarding paste-up and our move to more computerisation. She remembers Keith as Mr Memory Man and said, I joined ECHO in 1987-88, when the team was still manually pasting up. In the 18 years I was part of the team, I was always impressed by Keith's ability to recall dates and facts going way back. If he needed that kind of information, he was the man to go to. I cannot even begin to imagine how many articles he's researched and written for ECHO, but his commitment to producing accurate and detailed information is inspirational to other members of the team and reassuring to Echo readers. So, a big surprise for Keith then after many years contributing to local news. And now, in our final piece for this week, Dave and Graham travel to Starbridge on the cutest and one of the greenest little trains in the UK. Starbridge Junction has been named Britain's favourite station after winning the World Cup of Stations 2021. Hello, I'm speaking to you from Birmingham New Street with Graham. And we're on our way to Starbridge. Yeah. Well, hello, welcome to Starbridge Junction. Now, we've been on three trains to get here from Coventry. So, what's so special about this train, Graham? It um, stores um, uh, energy. Okay, so it goes downhill yeah. by gravity and then it sort of uh, charges up to, to enable it to go back up the hill. Yeah, that's right, yeah. That's right. Got any more information, Graham? It's an ingenious little train. Uh, the shuttle stores breaking energy in the flywheel, flywheel downhill, charges it, pulls it power back uphill. It's, it's one of the greenest trains in the UK. 
Fantastic. This is in, uh, pleased to be the shortest burn time in Europe. Any, any three fourths of a mile long. It takes over three minutes to do the uh, journey to the established town. Fantastic. Here we are, arriving at the railway station. Brilliant. Here we are. Right, I enjoyed the, that. Thanks, Graham. For the uh, Stourbridge Thistle, yeah. Excellent. And here we are in Stourbridge Town. Uh, so, what's so special about Stourbridge, Graham? I, th I think it's famous for glass blowing. Ah, there's the, a metal statue over there with a fellow uh, glass blowing. A bubble on the end of a long sort of pipe. And in Starbridge Town Centre there's some chandeliers, the kind of uh, sculpture with chandeliers on. Yeah, like uh, from glass I think, yeah. Yes, it's a famous for glass blowing, Starbridge. Starbridge is a market town in the borough of Dudley in the West Midlands, situated on the River Stour. Historically in Worcestershire it was a centre of British glassmaking during the Industrial Revolution. And the 2011 UK census recorded the town's population as 63,298. It says in the shopping centre the famous Stourbridge Lion locomotive was built in Stourbridge in 1828 at the foundry of Foster, Rastrick and Company, one of the pioneering steam locomotive manufacturing companies of England. Another picture on the wall of this restaurant is the Red House Cone. The Red House Cone in Wordsley on the Stourbridge Canal was used by the Stuart Crystal Glassmakers. The conical structure was built around 1790 and is 27 metres high and 18 metres wide. And we're back at the train station now. We're waiting for the Stourbridge Shuttle which comes and goes every 10 minutes. Okay, right, so what's the train known as, Graham? The Kingston train. In the world. Yeah. Fantastic. The Stourbridge Shuttle. And having uh, been powered by gravity, coming downhill, it's charged up and it's going back uphill. It's a cute internet sensation, this train. In 2017, our unique trains featured in the YouTube documentary all the stations in which Jeff Marshall and Vicky Pipe travelled to all 2,563 stations on the GB Rail network. Thanks to Vicky, everybody thinks our trains are cute too. We're sure you'd agree. And in the train, it tells us some information about Stourbridge. Raise a glass or two. Since the early 1600s, Stourbridge has produced glass regarded as the world's finest and has been used countless times as gifts for visiting dignitaries to the UK. You can enjoy visiting several museums in the area to discover our unique glass history. Here we are. We like to move it, move it. You on board an ingenious little train. The shuttle stores braking energy in a flywheel downhill, which then helps to power it back uphill. It's one of the greenest trains in the UK. 
small but mighty, connecting junction to town. Our route is only three quarters of a mile long and it's believed to be the shortest passenger branch line in Europe and the journey from end to end takes just over three minutes. In 2018 our service carried out its five millionth customer. Is it quality drivers? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> yeah, there, there does seem to be two drivers at the front. Yes. And a nice view out the window, isn't there? Yeah, nice view, yeah. Yeah, the houses and the church, very nice. And here we are, we've arrived. Stourbridge Junction. I'm speaking to the driver. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah we should be run um, seven days a week. Um, Monday to Saturday it's uh, ten minute service from yeah. quarter to six in the morning up until just yeah. before midnight. Uh, we, and we just run a passenger service carrying the uh, right. passengers from the Starbridge Interchange up to the Starbridge right. Junction main train station. Yes, yeah, so the whole thing's powered by gravity downhill and it charges up to go backhill. Oh, it gives it, yeah, it gives uh, kinetic energy from the braking system, gives into the flywheel, gives, um, gives you that boost to get you back up the, the hill and runs, it's mainly running LPG gas okay. to a 2.3 Ford Ranger engine. It, it's also powered by li liquid petroleum gas. Yes, that's the main that's the main fuel source here. Yeah. Liquid okay. petroleum okay. gas. Yeah. It's uh, helped along by gravity. Thank you very fantastic. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, we've been on two trains back home and we are now at the Torchwood Shopping Centre in Solihull. We're about to get a bus home from there. Thanks a lot for the uh, nice day out, Graham. It was really nice. Yeah, it's been good, yeah. It was nice travelling on the uh, cute train. Yeah, very, yeah, very good. Yeah. Okay, bye from me and bye from Graham. Bye. bye. Thanks to Dave and Graham there. They clearly enjoyed their day out at Starbridge and a journey on the Starbridge shuttle. So that's it for this week. It's goodbye from me, Peter Walters, and all the Outlook team. We'll be back next week. <laughs>